This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, relatable or debatable, avoiding mediocre main characters in speculative fiction. You had far too much fun with that. I really did, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not denying it. (laughs) So this is going to be a relatively light episode and um, we're going to be talking about characters and main characters, obviously. So I think we should probably start off, as we usually do, by explaining why we have uh, decided to do this episode and what we mean by it. Yeah, this wasn't really inspired by anything in particular, but... Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm honestly not pointing fingers at anybody, but I've been trying to read a lot more indie indie fantasy, particularly indie urban fantasy. Yeah. Um, A, because that's what I write and I want to see what's out there, but B, Mm -hmm. also I want to support my fellow indie. So, you know, obviously anyone who has any indie urban fantasy they want to recommend to me, let me know. Mm -hmm. Um, But some of it is a case of not every main character is for everyone and certainly not every main character is for me. There are some which I find that I just don't really engage with and I don't think it's a problem with the characterisation I think it's just a case of that character's not for me mm-hmm. um, I've certainly had a couple of reviews on Harkon Blackthorn where people have said love the concept, love all the creatures and everything love the way that you write but don't like any of the characters and I'm like, okay well that's what I write so <laughs> yeah. I'm probably not the author for you I'm not offended, it's just a case of I'm not going to be the author for everyone Yeah, absolutely um, so, yeah, all this is fine, but there are a couple of, of urban fantasy, and I have to say, this tends to be urban, more traditionally published urban fantasy, where I think the authors are required to hit some specific targets by the marketing departments, mm-hmm. maybe, um, and it tends to be older urban fantasy as well, so before the tropes really got thoroughly established, yeah. um, where it, I'm like, where is the characterization full stop? Yeah. what happened um, and it's very noticeable particularly with female urban fantasy main characters whereas like if you don't like um, the main character of Kevin Hutton's Iron Druid Chronicles or you don't like Harry Dresden or whatever mm-hmm. that's that's a thing that's fine but you can't say that they don't actually have characterization. where there's a couple where I'm reading yeah. them and I'm like I genuinely cannot see any difference between this character and anybody else in the story. Yes. Um, just a cardboard cutout. <laughs> yeah. Um, so sort of a stock placeholder. And I just think yeah. we can do better than that. So yeah. That's this episode. <laughs> yeah. Ultimately, if you want readers to really bond with your character, bearing in mind that your characters are the vehicles through which your readers enter the stories, um, they need to be relatable. So girl with sword in world where women don't fight, for example, is rather tired, ignorant of real world history, um, and it's becoming increasingly tedious if that's all you're providing us. Yeah, definitely. Um, And this again, I mean, obviously it depends. Your mileage may vary, but I actually quite enjoy a boy's own adventure type story, as in I quite enjoyed the series of Jack Reacher, but mm-hmm. Jack Reacher himself, how he was presented in the series, and bear in mind that I haven't read the book, so I can't mm-hmm. speak. There must be a re- reason why millions of people love 
the child's Jack Reacher stories. Mm-hmm. Um, I enjoyed the series, but the main character was very stock, sort of uh, muscle-bound ex-military guy on a mission. Mm-hmm. And it's like, if that's what you like, that's fine. But I thought they still could have done that character with a bit more nuance, personally. Yeah, and that's fair enough. Um, I've not read it, so I cannot comment with that in mind. Um, but I, I kind of do know exactly what you mean. Um, and again, in the past, and we're not really going to go into it, we've talked about how sometimes you can have certain characters who are almost a little bit hollowed out. You do see it sometimes in YA, for example, where the idea is actually people are projecting themselves onto it. But I would still argue that that's very risky um, and it can lead to a lot of people actually finding the main characters very difficult to engage with, not being relatable, and therefore the story um, not being particularly well liked. Yeah, I mean, instead of making your main character a mask, which Mm. is a legitimate choice, but not one that I would make, I think, Mm -hmm. um, make your main character relatable. Um, and if you're not sure how to make a main character relatable, we have some examples for you. Yes. <laughs> so let's look at what makes a character relatable in the first place. So uh, you can have the most powered up main character imaginable, so think mm-hmm. superheroes, and yet you can still make them relatable to your audience. So mm-hmm. think of the film version of Captain Marvel, Yeah. who technically she is overpowered. She is overpowered for that universe even. Yes. Um, but in her film her arc makes her power a handicap and in addition she's lied to and manipulated and the midpoint of the film has to face the fact that actually there's some difficult truths she needs to confront and it would be much easier for her much more comfortable for her mm-hmm. if she just turned away from them and it, because it means up, the upheaval of her entire life as she understands it yes and it's always easier to just go with what's known and familiar so for her to go Oh God, I was wrong. The people I trusted lied to me and manipulated me mm-hmm. and because they wanted my power. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a big moment. Um, and not very much is really even made of that. But I think how she feels, how she feels adrift for like 90% of that film, like she doesn't fit in anywhere or that she's out of control. When in fact she is in control. It's just that she should be allowed to express her anger. <laughs> Yes. It's something many people, especially many women, can actually relate to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> and just also the fact, again, being made to question yourself, being made to question authority, being made to question your identity, that is not something that a lot of people, just in general, can relate to on some level, particularly... Again, this is aimed towards kids and teenagers. Um, Obviously, Marvel uh, has a huge readership of adults and stuff like that. But um, in particular, uh, young adults, um, you know, also kind of at at certain ages, um, it's very, very popular with them. And for a lot of them, they are pushing against authority and starting to figure themselves out for the uh, you know, for the first time properly now. Yeah. So, again, it's going to be very, very... Her journey was going to be very, very relatable to them. Definitely. Now, you can say that about some of the other... I mean, we've all got our favourite Marvel mm-hmm. superheroes or whatever. Um, and some of them 
uh, are your favourite because they have qualities that you think are relatable, but they're not necessarily relatable for you. Yeah. Um, it's like Doctor Strange will always be my favourite, but honestly, I can't say that he personally and his character journey is relatable for me on a personal level. I just really no. enjoy going on it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I really, really loved the first Iron Man movie, but I, I wouldn't say that I really have that much in common with Tony Stark. <laughs> no, I mean, again, this sort of crosses over with our Butter episode and there'll yes. be more crossovers later on. But there are little tiny bits of the character and stuff that make you go, oh, yeah, I can absolutely like jive with that guy. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, so basically, relatable characters are easy for a reader to form an attachment to. Mm. So no matter how different they are from us, we can see ourselves in them in some way. Yes. Now, in contrast, mediocre main characters, um, they really shouldn't be main characters at all. Um, if nothing grabs you about them, then you've kind of got to ask, really, should they be the main character? Now, we have in the past discussed the fact that sometimes you kind of need a bit of a, genet a generic hero as a main character and then you have the sort of the wacky sidekicks. For example, if you look at Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, the first movie actually probably wouldn't have been anywhere near as good or as interesting if Jack Sparrow was just 100% the main character. Yeah. Um, he he's he wasn't really designed to be the main character. Uh, Will Turner and Elizabeth Swan are. They are at the core of the narrative, and he is like the you know the wild card that kind of gets presented there. So we're not talking just we're not saying okay, so the wild card should always be the main character. That's not what we're saying um, because at the end of the day, Will Turner and Elizabeth Swan are not actually mediocre main characters. No, but they are a little bit more traditional. Yes, they're very they, they are definitely traditional, um, but not mediocre. No. So there's a difference. Yeah. I do, I do think it is a thing in um, a lot of the YA that's coming out mm -hmm. lately where, yes, you do get the hollowed out main character, but they're also quite generic. And they, <laughs> the thing that usually keeps me reading it is one of the side characters. Yes. Um, at which point you're like, maybe the main character shouldn't actually be the main character. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I get exactly what you mean. <laughs> um, but yeah. Like this would be a good book if the main character had less time on page. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's usually a bit of a giveaway. <laughs> Um, now, in our I Want Candy episode, uh, we talked about characters ha having candy versus kale. Uh, now, not all characters need to have flaws that are inherent in their character. Sometimes the story can provide the kale, um, but over-candied characters are not relatable. Mary yeah. Sue's are not relatable. No. Um basically if your character has got everything and it's a little darling who the author is bestowing every blessing and gift upon mm -hmm. and then and they're not balancing it with kale and the narrative yeah then then yeah then they're not relatable and we've obviously gone into detail in that episode so check that out if that interests you yeah um however flaws can be a great way to make a character relatable 
and they don't even need to be big character flaws either they can mm. be minor things i would say steer clear of the clumsy trope because that's kind of a it's, it's a way overused it, it's overused it's a way of making a character have a flaw without actually giving them a flaw i mean is being clumsy or having an inner ear problem really a flaw yeah or just being dyspraxic <laughs> yeah it's kind of like okay so they don't have great spatial awareness and occasionally they trip over their own feet is that really a flaw However, you can have a flaw that isn't inherent in the character that affects the story, but yeah. ergo it is actually quite important. So, um, for example, in the Belgariad by David Eddings, Sinedra, the druid, priest, druid priestess, the druid princess, mm-hmm. not druid, she's dryad, the dryad princess, my god, sorry, <laughs> my brain. Anyway, she is raising an army. Um, and she cannot fight herself but she makes a very good figurehead people she's quite a shrewd political player people Mm. want to follow her and she's very personable but she's terrified of public speaking yeah and she's constantly being pushed forward to make speeches to these huge crowds of people that are being drawn to the army by polgara and polgara's like i'm not going to speak you're going to do it yeah and sinetra has to be the one who's speaking because she is the one that everyone's willing to follow so she's delivering these elizabeth the first style rousing speeches i have the the, the i have the body of a weak and feeble woman but i have the heart and stomach of a concrete elephant type yeah <laughs> type thing <laughs> black had a reference for you yeah um, i was gonna say that's <laughs> i don't remember that that's not how the speech went uh, but yes um <laughs> it makes everyone want to fight uh, to fight for her and so the army grows and they need to raise a huge army because they are facing pretty much insurmountable odds but she's not yeah. going to let Garion fight on his own um, but Sinedra throws up beforehand and then she mm-hmm. comes off after doing the public speech and getting everyone roaring for her and she throws up afterwards she mm-hmm. loses weight she spends a lot of time in the war shaking and shivering in a mess of tears because she's so terrified of public speaking yeah. and yet she still does it yeah. And I think anyone who's ever found it hard to speak up in any situation can probably relate to that on some level. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, I just love that, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I, I think I was getting to the point where she'd given her 12th speech and she's come off and Paul Gara's like, now, are you feeling better about it? And she's like, I need a bucket. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, wouldn't you be feeling better by now? But maybe not. Maybe it's something she will never adjust to. Yeah, and I think actually, in some ways, um, it, as the expectations sort of get higher and higher, it's it's she's never going to adjust to it because more and more people are coming to rely on her and stuff like that. And, you know, it's the, the, probably the larger crowds and the yeah. stakes go up. Yeah. It's like um, M obviously doesn't really do an awful lot of speaking in I Belong to the Earth and mm. to some extent not in I Am the Silence. She finds it very difficult to speak out because she has this 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 very compromising stutter yeah and she feels that she sounds stupid and that she's judged when she doesn't say anything and she'll be even more judged when she does speak and she has to force herself to to actually speak out when when things happen and she she keeps pushing herself a little bit more in every single book um so that while it doesn't necessarily get better she does improve slightly as she works on it Mm. she starts off with it's no there's no point there's no point in talking people aren't aren't going to listen to me because i'll sound stupid kind of thing yeah absolutely yeah the whole thing is a mental adjustment exercise 
Yeah. M does have other flaws as well. That's not even her main one. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, flaws also give us uh, built in a built-in character arc, since a character must overcome their flaws in order to triumph. Now, again, um, lots of different types of flaws and stuff like that. Uh, but this converts the re relatability factor of a character into reader satisfaction within the story. Um, the thing which provided the attachment being resolved naturally feels like a reward. Now again, this is why having uh, physical things be a, uh, a flaw starts to kind of get a bit messy, if that yeah. makes sense. Um, particularly if it's, you know, um, you kind of start to go, okay, for example, you could say, right, I have a character who's a bit clumsy and they're a bit clumsy because they, they're not paying attention. They, they purposefully are not paying attention. They're not actually being careful. Um, they are not being considerate. That could then be a flaw because that's something that they could then work on. It's a very different thing to then say, well, I have a character who has, um, you know, their, their flaw is that they have a massive limp. That's not a good flaw, really. Yeah, That's they, just something that they have. Um. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to say, going back to... Sorry to use my own examples, but going back to M again, the mm. fact that she has a stutter isn't a flaw. The fact no. that she will not push herself to speak because she has a stutter is the flaw. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the fact that, you know, and... It, it's so that it, the stutter is kind of a hurdle yeah um and her flaw is that she's kind of lost so much confidence within herself because of a number of different situations and other things which is that sometimes when she does try to speak people interrupt her or yeah. won't let her finish or and basically she's been made to feel like what she has to say isn't worthy yeah it's not worth uh, listening to yeah um and so the flaw is kind of actually her own impression of herself um, which isn't her fault, but it's something that she has to kind of um, reevaluate, and that's how she is able to kind of overcome her flaw is that she finds her own voice, and it's not to do with the physical voice; it's actually more to do with her internal voice and her ability to speak out. Yeah, it's something that sort of comes up in the fourth book where she's like, "Okay, I speak slower than other people. I have to, otherwise, I trip over my words." Yeah. And I've discovered that if people are actually worth my time and what I've got to say, they will also slow down to listen to, to me. And yeah. it's, it's actually, her perspective has changed completely from what I have to say isn't worth listening to, to if they're worth my time, mm -hmm. then they will slow down to listen to me. Otherwise, it's kind of a barometer. So she's yeah. completely flipped her perspective on things based on this. Yeah. Um, I think it's really important not to have a, a, what is effectively a disability be the flaw in itself, but yes. perhaps the attitude around disability can be. Yes, I completely agree. Um, and again, it's why something like, oh, well, clumsiness, it just... <sighs> I, I just kind of get a little bit... It, it, it's a bit cheap. And again, it depends on what's kind of causing the clumsiness. Because uh, sometimes people are, you know, particularly children, you might have a clumsy child because they're not actually they've not taken the time to sort of actually be coordinated to really think about what they're doing. They are just being careless. Yeah. You know? I mean, so I they... have one, one day of absolute clumsiness a month and it's to do with the fact that right before my period, my blood pressure drops. 
and I, I'm not alone. I, I thought I was weird, but I checked this and lots of other people go, oh yeah, I have a clumsy day once a month too. So there you go. <laughs> it can be all sorts of things. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's, it's, it's definitely worth thinking about. And as we've said, um, another reason why you, you don't want it to kind of just be a physical thing, it's got to be an internal thing, particularly if you want the satisfaction of then it being part of their character arc. And again, we've talked about the hero's journey. We've talked about character arcs and things like that multiple times. Uh, so we're not going to get into that now. Um, yeah. But obviously these things are very deeply tied into it. Um, and when we're thinking of character flaws that, or, or things like that, these tend to also be tied in a lot of ways to um, other aspects of the character. They're not just kind of pasted in. They are kind of combined with everything else that's going on so they're combined with something which actually might also be a strength as well so for example Emmeline um is incredibly observant yeah um and she actually then really thinks about things before she says them for the yeah. most part um, <laughs> so for the most part she, she has a temper but you know <laughs> yeah she does have a temper but you know the fact the fact of the matter is is that there are some 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 good has come of the fact that she's also kind of silenced herself in that she's actually in some ways been able to temper temper herself in other ways you know yeah definitely um a final thought and using the same example while we talk about you know the resolution of an of the reason for an attachment making mm -hmm. it feel like a reward um yeah. once i'd written i belong to the earth i I think it was some editor said, well, you know, it's kind of, she's kind of irritating to read when she's, she's stuttering. And I'm thinking, yeah, okay, fair enough. I could perhaps put it on the page differently. And she's like, is she going to stutter in the second book? This was back when the second book was going to be picked up um, by the same publisher. And mm -hmm. I was thinking, what am I going to do? Am I going to have her stutter magically resolve in the second book? Because yeah. I was like, Yes, I suppose that would make it easier to write and that would make it easier for people to read. But on the other hand, isn't that a huge betrayal and kind of like using this part of a disability to as, as basically um, like, like an edgy selling point in book one and then getting rid of it when it's not convenient anymore? And I'm like, I can't do that. That's not right. I mean, yeah. it can improve through speech therapy and things like that, but it's not going to go completely. Mm -hmm. Which is why, I, I, yeah. you know, she's still there in book four. She still has a stutter. She's just come to terms with it better. And I think that feels like far more of an attachment reward than if I'd magically resolved it. I completely agree. Um, and it, it's just far more realistic as well in how she's come to terms with it, how she's come to terms with it, and also how she has kind of approached it. Because I also think that sometimes with certain disabilities and right now I'm actually going to speak from very personal experience um, there are certain things uh, certain symptoms I get because of my neurodivergence um, which make certain avenues of life very difficult now I could just say well this is my lot and just continue to just live like that or I could say actually um, some of these things cause me problems um, 
I cannot change the fact that I'm neurodivergent, nor would I want to change the fact that I'm neurodivergent, but there are certain skills and exercises and things that I can do which can make my life easier, which can ease some of those symptoms, which can allow me to manage them. Um, this is a choice that I have made. Now, if I cho chose not to make them, I would actually be actively making a decision which was, I'm just going to let these things make my life difficult and actually expect everybody else to, the world to accommodate me when the world cannot accommodate me because the world cannot accommodate any single one person. Um, individuals can, but the world cannot. That would be on me. And I think Emmeline actually, she does make efforts. Um, she works towards these things. We see the same with Diego in the Umbrella Academy, for example. Now he had a very bad stutter. He developed a very bad stutter when he was a child and you see him working on it. And for the most part, he doesn't stutter as an adult. However, that stutter isn't gone. We see several times when he is panicked or uh, confronted with things like that, the stutter returns. And, it, and that for me really demonstrates the fact that he is, he's constantly working on this and it's a lot easier for him than when he was a kid, but it is still something that he has consciously had to make an effort towards and continues to have to make an effort towards. Emmeline's stutter is um, reduced in the later books, I think. Um, she's also, she speaks a lot more because I think the other thing is that, and it's been demonstrated that people with a stutter, um, the stutter gets obviously a lot worse if they don't practice speaking. Yeah. Um, for some people, depending on what's causing the stutter, obviously. Whereas the more they speak, um, the more uh, it can help to improve their stutter. Um, it can help them manage their stutter. Uh, so Emmeline speaks more. She is managing her stutter. It's not gone because, but it doesn't need to be gone. The stutter itself is not the flaw. The way that she interacts with it, the way that she accepts it, the way that she lives with it, that was the, the difficulty. Yeah, definitely. It's noticeable in books, well, it's technically book six, in Betwixt mm -hmm. and Betwixt, where her, her stutter is, you know, it has moments of being quite bad again, because she's meeting Kieran's mother, and Kieran's mother really doesn't like her. Yeah. And Em's already really nervous, so it, it's coming out in moments of high stress. And yeah then you whenever she makes a cameo in Harker and Blackthorn, it's almost barely noticeable because this is eight, nine years on in the future. And again, she's had all that time working on it and she's been in the public eye. Yes. So. And most of the times whenever she's making an appearance in Harker and Blackthorn, she's talking to her sister. Yes, which is the other thing. <laughs> yeah, which is obviously going to make a humongous difference. <laughs> Definitely. Okay, okay, so let's look at some relatable versus debatable um, <laughs> characters. You can tell I'm just a bit too pleased with that, can't you? So pleased. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, yes. Relatable versus debatable. I think what's happened there is I've gone back to the 90s where the women's magazines had those the hot and the not kind of <laughs> That's the energy you're, chal uh, you're channeling, That's certainly. But relatable versus debatable. Debatable. <laughs> so I do apologise, people, but 
I must have my little joke. <laughs> you're all, you're going back to a different period entirely there. Well, you yeah. must let me have my little joke. Yeah. Do you mean going back? I'm always there. Most of the time it's window dressing, so I seem mostly normal. Okay, so. Relatable. Flaws that affect the arc and the character by extension. So mm. a really good example of this for me is Kira Norris from Deep Space Nine. Mm -hmm. When we first meet her in the first episode of the first season, um, she's a hothead. She's literally come from being the one of the leaders of a terrorist organisation, a freedom fighter organisation, depending mm -hmm. on the viewpoint. They finally got rid of the Cardassians. Um, obviously the spoon heads, not the... Uh, not, not Kim Kardashian, etc. <laughs> um, and here comes this other, this other galactic power mm -hmm. who apparently uh, they're saying they're going to help, but Kira's um, experience is that anything that comes and says, oh, we're going to make your lives better, is actually just going to colonise them. Yes, yeah. the Federation intend to genuinely help Bajor reach a point where it could join the Federation. Mm -hmm. that's, that's, they are genuinely acting from largely altruistic motives. Um, yeah, but she doesn't know that, and her hostility, her lack of trust, and her impulsiveness mm. really kind of undermines Cisco to start with, and mm -hmm. gets in the way. Even though really they're on the same side, they want the same things. Um, but as eventually trust begins to build with them, she she grows throughout all seven seasons, and she questions her motives. She questions things that she did. Um, both things that she wasn't previously ashamed of and things that she was ashamed of. Mm. She's done a lot of stuff that isn't very laudable in no. her time as a freedom fighter. I mean, that's the thing. You, you make these trades with yourself. You call innocent bystanders and collateral damage. You call them collaborators because they happen to be standing too close to the people you were trying to kill. Yeah. So she's done a lot of stuff um, and... The fact that she starts confronting these things, she's got the space to do it, mm -hmm. means that eventually she becomes one of the greatest assets on Deep Space Nine because she has these freedom fighter tactics which they actually have to rely on. So yeah. she, gro she actually grows to the point where she can lead the Kardashians in a resistance movement against the Jem'Hadar on their own planet. Yeah, um, And none of them like each other, none of them get on, there's a lot of racial tension between them all. And yet yeah. she still does it because she knows it's the best thing for everybody. Yeah. Um, and I think the other thing is that her story is brilliant because she starts off being, she is, and very understandably so, um, she is uh, very 100% one way. Yeah. There is no compromise. Um, there's no other way. There's no nothing because she had to survive um, and she saw some horrible things. And again, it's this fantastic example of a story which we were previously discussing um, <laughs> where um, you, you, circumstances, the, the, the reality of existence means that life cannot function in the same way that previously was acceptable what are society's rules um they don't really exist because um this is a, an eat or be eaten kind of world instead um 
and then suddenly she's kind of she kind of has to adjust to the fact that now we're going into civilian life and what how do we function around that as well so her whole kind of character journey makes an incredible amount of sense and for me does so without undermining the situation that she was in it just says this is the reality and the reality is that things were it's all a bit shit to be honest (laughs) yeah i think it's really interesting and i really applaud this the fact that she does learn a measure of forgiveness where it's something that she can manage both for Mm -hmm. herself and for some Cardassians. she she learns that they're not not that she learns they're not all the same she allows herself the space to acknowledge they're not all the same yeah and to treat each person as an individual rather than um well you're a kardashian ergo you are bad kind of thing yeah Um, exactly and she's really uncompromising in terms of her own moral judgment and things so Mm -hmm. i i don't know i think she's very relatable in that she's not only relatable she's someone that you kind of want to aspire to even when she makes bad decisions Mm -hmm. yeah i completely agree and obviously her flaws affect the overall arc of the series. Yes, the, she's a pretty, you know, important character in that regard. Yeah, she can either be a huge asset or a ginormous pain in the backside. Yes, um, and she, uh, yeah, she definitely has her moments, that's for sure. Um. <laughs> okay, so, um, debatable. Flaws being overlooked and excused. Um, now, with the the second and third seasons of Stranger Things, I started to like Sheriff Hopper a little bit less, mm-hmm. even though I kind of really liked him in the first season. And it's because his flaws. I mean, he isn't. Let, let's just say that you know, abusing prescription drugs and alcohol aren't necessarily a flaw. They're a symptom of a flaw. Mm-hmm. Um, and the symptom of the flaw is obviously there's, there's trauma there that he won't address. The fact he won't address it is the real flaw. But yeah. I think the problem is he's kind of directing a lot of that stuff outwards. So you don't see why he's basically trying to keep Eleven penned up rather than listening to her and understanding the fact that as a preteen or very early teenage girl, she does actually need interaction with people her own age. Yeah. Um, or the fact that he's shouting at Joyce a lot of the time um, and a lot of it seems to be coming from this place of he has feelings for her Mm -hmm. um, trying to make her acknowledge the fact she has feelings for him and it's like I think the problem is they kind of skate over those flaws the way he's acting is not in any way laudable but if he acknowledged that they were wrong and um, took measures against against those flaws um it would be a lot more relatable. Instead, you're just left kind of thinking, you're kind of a jackass. And Mm. I liked you in the first season, but now I'm like, hmm, I want to still like you, but you're not acting in a particularly relatable or laudable way. Yeah. I can't speak because I stopped watching Stranger Things. Um, So I only really knew him in the first series. Um... So I, I can't I can't comment, I'm afraid. But it is actually you're making a very interesting point in that. Um and I think this is one of the other things in that when we kind of when you have flawed characters, you don't need to people, you know, 
we are we don't need to have everything spoon fed to us you yeah. know we don't need to have character we don't need to have a situation every time where we say um and this was wrong this character we don't need to be moralized to more often than not we as you know viewers we understand when something is wrong um but if you are kind of putting a main character forward um and you are repeatedly kind of putting certain sort of patterns in place and not addressing them you are going to start to alienate your audience particularly if you're constantly saying and this is a good person and this is the good guy this is the good guy essentially yeah yeah absolutely um so i guess what i'm saying is if you want your character to be perceived as a protagonist as an as an actual hero in your story don't mm -hmm. skate over their flaws and that doesn't mean that they have to like, sort of break down in the confessional and say they were such a bad person or anything. You just kind of like, I didn't act the best way I could have acted there. Have those, mm. have those moments of realisation and trying to correct themselves, I guess. Yeah. And again, I mean, I just, I don't know because I haven't, I haven't seen the whole, the whole thing. Um, so I, I, I can't argue whether hopper does do that or he doesn't so i mean he's more relatable in in season four in my opinion but yeah. he's also suffering in season four <laughs> so i don't know maybe that's that's why maybe that's uh, okay <laughs> we like we like a character who's suffering um. <laughs> okay another relatable one being unready um there are loads and loads of reluctant heroes and unready heroes and people out there who are like mm -hmm. i don't feel i've got the skill set to deal with this but i am still the best person for the job so yeah um, or the frodo, only person for the job which the is the, <laughs> the um, frodo baggins for example mm -hmm. um but by the way being unready is also super butter people love that as a trope yeah so super butter check out our buttery episode our buttery episode our buttery um, episode <laughs> But yeah, Frodo. Frodo doesn't have any special skills, but the ring must be carried into Mordor by a hobbit because they know a hobbit has it. So he is probably the best qualified of the four available hobbits, no question. Yes, um, and with regards to actually just who hobbits are as people, um, and also who Frodo is as a person, he, you know, he and Sam are pretty much the only two who could really have done it, to be honest. And Frodo... I mean, we don't know how long Sam would have been able to resist it. We, we, we never find that out. Sam manages for the last last little bit, as it were. Um, but yeah, Frodo resists the ring's power mm. for as long as possible. That is his special skill. It's an unsung special skill because everyone else is like swords and archery and magic, etc. Yeah. Um, and the, the fact is that it's a remarkable skill, but it's a quiet skill. Yeah. Um, and probably actually linked to the fact that he wasn't really ready because someone who's ready perhaps to go off on that kind of adventure um, might not have had the kind of the heart and and what was required in order to survive as long as they did. Yeah, I mean, you know? well, for example, Boromir was very definitely ready to go off on that sort of adventure, but he was absolutely yeah. not ready to tackle the ring. No, exactly. Um, another example is obviously Miles Morales from Into the Spider-Verse. Um, yes. Where, is he ready? No, he's suddenly been landed with these powers that he doesn't know how to use. However, 
of the established supervillains um, around him, he is literally the only person with powers at all, so he's still the best choice for the job despite being unready. Yeah, um, and I loved the way that they did that as well with regards to making him sort of being the unready because it completely parallels the the, the grown-up uh, Peter B. Parker yeah. Um, who arrives as well because that guy um, has all of the skills that Miles Morales doesn't have but he isn't ready to actually go back and face the life that he's living yeah. he isn't actually ready to be he, he's ready to be Spider-Man he's not ready to be Peter Parker and Miles Morales is obviously ready to be Miles Morales, but he's not ready to be Spider-Man. Um, which is why they have this, it's this wonderful parallel between the two of them. Um, which is why I think their, their kind of, their character arcs and the way that they interact with one another and the way that they help one another um, is so powerful and works so well in the story. Yeah, definitely. Okay, uh, the debatable, uh, being one of a dozen people who could do it. Um, I've put the Eternals down for this, and the, part of the reason I've put the Eternals down is having watched the film, I think, around Christmas time, um, I can remember the bare bones of it, and I just cannot think of any of the characters who were stand out, and that they had this massive, massive mission that they had to accomplish, and yet, still, I feel like any single one of them could have done it. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. They've all kind of like faded into this general morass. Well, this is the thing, like, because when I think, okay, what about which character stands out? And the answer is the uh, the film, the, the film director, the valet, oh, the guy who yeah, was, the, the, he the stands out to me. Was the little, little dude going around with his camera to With his picture. camera, yeah. I was so relieved when he survived. Yeah, me too. Like, that's the guy that stands out for me. Um, and the reason he stands out is that he's different from the others who were, uh, yeah, you're right. Um, and again, they... I don't think it was that bad, to be honest. I still enjoyed it as a movie, but you're absolutely right that... Um, they just, yeah, they, it kind of did all kind of bleed in a little bit together, didn't it, in some respects? It was nice, nicely painted moving wallpaper, as far as I was concerned. <laughs> it didn't work for me, I'm afraid. And that's I, fair I, enough. The trouble I, is, I really wanted it to, because I liked the concept. Hmm. Yeah. For for me, there was a, there was a lot of problems with that movie. Um, I liked... I liked some of the characters and the ideas and the themes that they presented, but I think ultimately it wasn't tied together very well, and that was one of my one of my problems. Yeah. So, but yeah. Okay. Um. So, all right. Relatable. Uh. Struggling with lack of self worth. I think that's got to be relatable for everyone at some point in their life. Yeah. Even over a specific thing. Mm hmm. Um. I haven't actually written an example down for this one, but I'm sure we can, <laughs> I'm sure we can come up with one. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's definitely something that we've both done with our work. Yeah. Um, I think Emmeline, obviously in, in book one of I Belong to the Earth, uh, doesn't have a great sense of self-worth. Actually, Kieran. Kieran probably Kieran... struggles with a lack of self-worth more than she does. Yeah, I totally one. agree with that. Yeah, um, he's obviously really, really struggles with it. Um, it's something that Kestrel struggles with. Yeah. 
um, on a on a kind of a lower level, Galahad definitely struggles with it for a number of different reasons regarding what is his worth. Um, is he even a person is the way he has to, you know, kind of see it, which is a very difficult thing to be kind of dealing with. Um, and Rufus, Rufus, I think, goes through it where he kind of has to swing between the fact that he's like, okay, listen, yes, I'm conscious of the fact that I'm incredibly clever, um, but also I'm a worthless human being. What am I miss? Yes. Um, so I think it's definitely something that a lot of characters, you might have a character who it really, really is a, a large thing with them, or you might have a character where it's they have moments of doubt and things like that, but it's incredibly relatable. Definitely. Um, debatable. Uh, being undeserving and yet rewarded for it. So I'm sure we've all seen a film somewhere where someone is handed captaincy or leadership of something and you're like why did you pick that guy why didn't you pick the person standing over there who has barely been given a speaking part but is clearly a hundred times more qualified yeah (laughs) (laughs) and you see it in books as well and it's like what you've done is you've kind of picked the most generic this is the thing it's a mediocre main character you've picked a generic main character i'm sorry to say this but it's quite often a male main character who isn't Mm. as qualified isn't as skilled but is kind of like a hollow that you can insert your your male readership mostly male readership into Mm -hmm. and it's just it's really irritating a much more interesting character would be oh i don't know it it, it's you know pick the short self-conscious guy who is it's like Harry Dresden. I'm not having a pop at Harry Dresden, by the way. I really genuinely am not. Um, but I'm like, I kind of want the Butters series. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think... on the surface, he's unlikely. He's he's a short mortician who mm. um, couldn't handle being a, a genuine doctor because of the blood and everything. And who's mm. who's into polka music. He's like, it's not an obvious choice for a hero, and yet he's brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting, though, because I think sometimes, because this is such a debatable one, um, that there has been a trend of kind of questioning it. So, for example, if you look at the Ant-Man movie, you would say that on the surface level, it seems to be being undeserving and being rewarded. And they actually kind of really went into that, in that you have... um, uh he scott yeah um it, it is scott isn't it yeah yeah it is it's scott uh so you have scott and he goes um you know it, it appears to be that he's just some guy who's been picked up he's been given this suit and he's been given this mission and meanwhile dr pym's daughter is right there next to him who is actually qualified to actually be able to do this mission And then you actually look at it and say, no, Scott has been selected because he has proven to be a very capable thief. And the whole point is that they need a thief. And yes, um, he does need to be trained in the machinery. The daughter is significantly better at it. 
but very uh, for very particular reasons dr pym is like yeah absolutely you're more qualified but i care about you and i don't give <laughs> i don't give a crap about him it's okay if he dies in this process it's not okay for you to die in this process yeah and she actually kind of has to is her name hope i think it's yeah. hope yeah she actually has to push against it and she succeeds in pushing against it you know yeah um so but that whole plot only works with the because we are so familiar with that very debatable trope of the being undeserving and rewarded yeah yeah definitely um if you're not going to subvert that trope then it is definitely a one-way ticket to mediocre main character bill yeah yeah okay so relatable uh struggling with flaws Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh there. It's just my example. <laughs> what? People, people will possibly um, disagree with my examples here. But I'm thinking of the most recent Court of Mist and Fury book, A Court of Silver Flames, Struggling mm-hmm. with Flaws, Nesta. Yes. And you mean A Court of Thorns and Roses? Yes. <laughs> yes, um, absolutely. Um, struggling with flaws uh, is always going to actually create a lot of great tension and questioning and stuff like that it works particularly well in ya and older fiction um i do think nestor is actually a really good example of this no matter i mean we both have our opinions regarding this book um (laughs) but nestor kind of actually really because she's also struggling a little bit in terms of the self-worth but she's struggling with her flaws um, and struggling to kind of find herself within them and kind of forgive herself as well. Yeah. Yeah, it makes um, perfect sense within her character arc, everything that's, you know, everything she's doing internally, doesn't it? I won't speak yeah. for the rest of the book, but what the, the realisation she comes to mostly all kind of makes sense. Yeah, I completely agree. Um but the debatable side of that. (laughs) Uh, Struggling with flaws leading to trampling on other characters. (laughs) Can you guess who I put down for that one? Was it Feyre? It was indeed Feyre. (laughs) To be fair, this is less in the first and second books in that series. But after that, it's a case of... I think it's a combination of airbrushing over Feyre's flaws and not confronting them Mm. and the fact that she seems to think it's okay to just do whatever she wants because she's Feyre and it becomes more and more pronounced with every book after that Um, we're all supposed to just think Feyre's wonderful without really a lot of substance to back that up and she doesn't really struggle with her flaws everybody gets out of her way everybody bends over backwards to accommodate her flaws yeah which is interesting because obviously there's this whole thing with the mirror in the third book where she has to really look at herself. Yeah. Um, and I felt like we... And, and the point is obviously that she accepts herself. But in some respects it felt a little bit undeserving. And it shouldn't have because obviously from the second book she was dealing with the fact that she felt incredibly guilty because of the people that she killed and the fact that she'd survived being under the mountain and obviously the fact that she was deeply traumatised by everything that was happening. So it should have actually felt very, very deserving at that point where 
at the peak of this character she faces herself and she embraces that she embraces who she is and what she's had to become um in order to save as many people as possible um but we don't really get that because we don't really get that discussion that the kind of the struggle with flaws in the same way in the third book and nor do we get it beyond that yeah and i think the most damning thing is she does in fact trample over everybody else's feelings there are points where she tramples over amran um, mm -hmm. which you know is not necessarily a polaxing thing for amran but it is very rude uh, she mm. does it with more as well mm -hmm. i think she softly outs morrigan as well which is kind of not okay <laughs> at mm. all um she even does it with Resan, and Resan's just kind of like yeah babe it's fine you know and it's just so annoying also the ongoing persecution of tamlin is really really irritating yeah um, but that's a whole other thing. <laughs> thing and the worst of it is in that final or most recent book is the way that Feyre's sheer presence just sort of tramples over Nesta and it's the case it's not even enough sort of let's get Nesta out of this DOS house but let's absolutely condemn that building and make anyone else living there basically homeless without explaining what's happening to them yeah and the thing is it, it's placed like well this is you know we can't have a, a, a nasty place in Valeris you know that and and it kind of creates this idea of of moral character which is that anyone who lives there must be of suspicious moral character you know yeah. um whereas what they could have said is like we've just seen you know these are not up to standard building code so we are going to actually be completely renovating it or something like that yeah but which they don't do they just destroy it <laughs> instead it was kind of like yeah this is an eyesore and a stain and the only people of moral dubiety would actually stay there kind of thing yeah. it's not enough to just take nestor away from everything they have to destroy any chance of ever going back and it's mm. it doesn't come across as help at all it comes across as just trampling over her when clearly Nesta is suffering from PTSD, but of course no one bends over backwards for Nesta like they do for Feyre. Um, anyway, very, very irritating, not relatable, definitely debatable in my opinion. <laughs> now, um, these are just some examples. Uh, there are many, many more, but hopefully you guys get the idea. <laughs> <laughs> yes um, it's not an exhaustive list <laughs> no um, and we'd love to hear some other examples that you guys can think of as well so do feel free to send some through again through our twitter facebook uh, or tumblr individually or through the dissecting dragons pages we do love hearing from you um so i guess we should now kind of put our our <laughs> our money where our mouth is a little bit um how have we created uh, relatability in our own characters do you think yeah okay well I'll take Steve and Amy since I've already spoken about M at length mm. um, Amy in a lot of ways shouldn't be relatable because she is an overachiever and she has this tremendous psychic gift as well so she's already been given a lot of candy at the start mm. however she is an absolute disaster when it comes to her love life yeah and she isn't yeah. as sure of herself as she seems to be either. Yeah, yeah. And to be honest as well, though, I think that Amy um, 
is relatable in a lot of ways because she works hard. Yes, she's she's a bit of a genius. Um, so yes, she does have that candy. Uh, but she's also someone who you see actually making efforts. You see her really working towards things, which is relatable. And she's a perfectionist, you know, a little bit of a perfectionist as well, um, which again is is relatable. Um, yeah. So it's not just in terms of her kind of her her social her social difficulties, of which she does have many. Because even at the beginning, there are a few strange things straight away with Eddie and her relationship with Eddie and her complicated relationship with other people and the way that they see her. Um, all of these things kind of work towards making her a very likable character. Um, and I struggle a lot of the times with the way that female characters are written in urban fantasy and because I don't find them relatable at all. Um, I find them just to be very, very candied. Um, they're more like, uh, what's the word? Um, wish like, fulfillment. Yeah. Um, whereas I don't find that with Amy at all. I find her to be a three-dimensional character. I like being in her head, as it were, uh, she feels real to me and I do relate to her in several ways. I also, I've blown my own trumpet a bit here, but I also think it's nice to have a character and be in their head when they are generally quite a cheerful, um, outgoing sort of person. Absolutely. Well. Yeah. They're optimistic and, and about life. That's kind of nice as a change rather than I necessarily. completely agree. <laughs> And again, I think it's probably one of the the most attractive features about Amy is the fact that she is just cheerful. And she does go through, obviously, some some very troubled moments as well, which is totally justified because she's, you know, she's been through stuff. Um, but she is a cheerful, optimistic character, which, again, I think a lot of people will find relatable because uh, despite a kind of what is now being produced which is a generation of nihilism yeah. um in our hearts i think a lot of people want to be optimistic yeah definitely um, so i think that that's quite nice um you know as a sort of foil for that you have steve who mm. struggles with self-worth uh, struggles with flaws he actually kind of struggles with flaws that don't really exist mm -hmm. um and yet he is brilliant when the occasion calls for it without even realizing that he's being brilliant so yeah he's kind of a bit more i think the thing with both of them is both of them in their own ways feel like outsiders but amy's solution to being an outsider is to try and create an inside and yeah. to pull people into it so i feel like an outsider so i'm just going to pull in all these other people who are a bit oddball <laughs> and make them my family whereas steve is kind of like his his thing is i feel like an outsider and i don't deserve to be on the inside yeah um and again he's very relatable in that way i think his quiet brilliance but also one of the things i really like about him that i find very relatable is how when he gets started on something when someone does manage to crack him open a tiny bit yeah. and he starts talking about his interests they really really come out and he can get lost in it um and you know he's his passion um about these subjects i think 
everybody loves characters who suddenly explode with passion in that way you know when they really talk about something they care about because there's something very breathtaking about that kind of enthusiasm yeah i mean you you need patience and curiosity and you know to earn his his trust which isn't Mm. easy but when you do he's an absolute treasure trove (laughs) yeah it's just getting to that point because he is i mean he doesn't have as much of a chip on his shoulder as he did say back in the unveiled series he's obviously grown up a lot since then um yeah until nine years have passed but um he does still have that i'm going to be rejected feeling because Mm -hmm. i'm odd i'm weird i'm not especially physically appealing to anybody um so i'm going to reject people before they get the chance to reject me yeah absolutely um, okay, so, alright, so you've done Steve and Amy, so I think I should probably address Rufus and maybe Zachary. <laughs> and I've got to say, Zachary was interesting in book one, but I didn't think he was relatable until, he was, until book two. No, no, and to be honest, he wasn't really supposed to be relatable in book one. Yeah. Um, because it is very much book one very much centers even though we get large parts obviously from Rufus's point of view book one very much does center on Yonathan's journey and the whole point is that Yonathan cannot relate to Zachary if he could then things might have been a little bit different but he can't in the same way that Zachary could not relate to Yonathan for a long time until he starts really thinking about things in the second book where he literally goes from calling him Yonathan to Yonat yeah um so uh i think with rufus uh rufus is definitely going to be a character who it's actually interested me how many people have kind of said to me um i've had family members who've said you know he reminds me of myself and and you know uh, in ways that have kind of surprised me in some respects um i think he's a character who a lot of people will kind of relate to in in terms of self-worth um in terms also of the fact that in the first book he's trying to make himself smaller yeah and i think particularly for a lot of teenagers and and things like that and and young adults who are who the books are obviously kind of aimed towards we've all been through kind of experiences where we've been hurt and we are trying to make ourselves smaller in order to fit um and trying to kind of dull down and push down something within us that we don't think is appropriate the amount of for example it it used to be a joke uh, because obviously i work at a university my brother works at a university as well a different capacity different university but um we used to talk about the fact that when you get a lot of the 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 people coming in for the open days you have these 17 18 year olds and they it's not cool to be enthusiastic about stuff particularly a few years ago it was like no no we can't show ourselves having a good time we've got to be like oh yeah i guess it's okay um and and it's like no no you're not allowed to be enthusiastic about stuff you're not allowed to be geeky about stuff you've kind of just got to be calm you've got to be nihilistic you've got to be indifferent to it um and then like over time they kind of they get to university and they're like oh yeah we can be weirdos um and suddenly you realize that everyone is a weirdo um 
And so I think that that's an element that's going to, that is relatable in Rufus. Obviously it's not, he's not doing it for the same reasons, but he is, this is a guy who is obsessed with magic. He really loves magic. He has just spent his entire life chasing magic. Um, and he's at the same time trying to completely push it down. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's probably one of the relatable elements to him, as well as grief and bereavement and things like that, which a lot of people also do find uh, relatable for a number of different reasons, because we've all lost in some capacity. Do you know, I think it's also that he's kind of a hot mess. Yeah, to be honest. Um, and I think also the fact that he's a hot queer mess. Uh, yeah. is... <laughs> it's like, I mean, he's got... It's, it's so weird. He's got a lot of things together. In certain aspects, he's really chilled and he has his opinions all set and everything. And yet in yeah. other ways, it's kind of like he's not he's internally running away from shit. And it's like, I'm not going to do this because it's the most chaotic thing I can do. But I might yeah. just not do anything and chaos will happen around me kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and also he he hoards his pain. Yeah. I think a lot of people can kind of understand the whole swallowing things down because it's kind of scary to talk about them. Um, Zachary, I think, is relatable because I think we've all been in a situation where we've had to question the decisions that we've made and he has made some questionable decisions. Um, But ultimately, he felt like he was doing the right thing and he's had to actually kind of re-examine that Um, and he's also had to examine the fact that a lot of the decisions that he's made and the person that he is have been shaped by trauma and that doesn't make it acceptable um, but it allows him to kind of to understand it so I think that he is relatable in that way because ultimately he we see that he's not an evil person he's just a person who was in a very complicated situation who had a very particular and very peculiar power uh sort of handed to him and then was kind of put in a very very odd situation whilst dealing with an incredible trauma so he went from just being this person who was kind of just doing bad things to you realize a person who was putting on a bit of an act because he had decided he needed to be the bad guy because it was ultimately the right decision. Yeah. Also, he's a hot mess too. Different kind of hot mess. Very different kind of hot mess, but (laughs) definitely a hot mess as well. Um, What about Gregory Maudsley? Because, damn. (laughs) See, that's the weird thing, isn't it? Because if you write historical fiction, you are certainly if you're writing medieval historical fiction, you're writing about people who think in a slightly different way to how we think now. So yeah. they are us, but certain things are dialed up and certain things are dialed down. Things mm-hmm. we take for granted mm-hmm. are things they'd be horrified by and vice versa. And in a lot of ways, he shouldn't necessarily be relatable. He's somebody who's made his living killing people for a living. You know, he's mm-hmm. been a, a sword for hire, a mercenary, and he's come back, and he's kind of a bit of a bastard, really. He is. I mean, forget the knightly code, the supposed what we understand of the knightly code. He doesn't embody it at all. He doesn't dress to his station. He is 
untidy. I mean, Eleanor's got it right when she says at the end of the first book that I was looking for a project because yeah. basically he is, damn, that man is a project. <laughs> <laughs> but he's relatable because when he's presented with choices, most of the time, but not, not all the time, certainly most of the time, he won't immediately go for doing the worst thing he possibly could. Yeah. And he doesn't, he'll do the right thing and he'll quite often do it grudgingly because we're in his head we realize a lot that it's quite grudging yeah but i i think i also like it in that he's relatable because he doesn't actually necessarily he isn't very honest with himself either no he has um, to play those games doesn't he? he he does he plays kind of sort of some games with himself where he's like oh yeah well how, how annoying cuthbert is and then and, and you're like the way you're acting um is very different to <laughs> the words that you are saying and i and i am suspicious um <laughs> by the way you're not fooling cuthbert at all yeah yeah i love that he's like cuthbert just stopped being scared and i'm like for a kid who spent his entire childhood being beaten the fact that he's not afraid of gregory maudsley is very very telling because he clearly has just seen right through Gregory, um, you know, you, you develop an you develop an instinct, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I really like him in that way. I like the fact as well that he he can have very very complicated feelings. So, for example, he is really struggling with Eleanor, um, yeah. but by God, when he sees someone threatening her, you know, in his own home he reacts um he comes to her defense uh, yeah. he he does have certain instincts and things like that so and they're messy it's not always simple and, and clean cut well, so yeah, that's not supposed that like to throw a man of the cloth off the curtain wall no for example. <laughs> not a great idea really all things considered that could have gone terribly wrong um, and he is rather impulsive in that way. <laughs> I just love the fact that they both stare at each other and then just look over the wall like, uh, so. <laughs> Did you Are know you that gonna... massive cart of shit was down there? <laughs> nope. <Yeah. laughs> Did you know it was there before or after you threw him off the wall? After. <laughs> <laughs> I love him. Um, so yeah, very relatable. Uh, again, people don't have a lot... Um, in terms of sort of with knowing Kestrel um, other than kind of a short story which is out there um, but I think she's probably one of my most relatable characters yeah. um, simply because whatever's happening she doesn't want to be doing it <laughs> she is the abs <laughs> no, I've said it before and I'll say it again she is, she's not a reluctant hero she is an absolute grudging hero yeah she she really is the <laughs> it's the epitome of okay I'll do it but I'm going to complain the whole time <laughs> she even has words to that effect um, in the first book where she's like yes okay this is my mission I've got to go and do it and it's my right therefore to complain about it the entire time and she does complain about it the entire time which to be honest given the situation she's in um and she, yeah, she she's kind of been put into situations. She's very reluctant uh, because she's been hurt um, 
And yet at the same time, she can't deny the fact that a part of her kind of does want to be there, does want to be doing the things that she's doing. Um, and that is messy. She's also not always a very nice person. Um, she has the best intentions, but she does has, have to be called out on what is occasionally rather bratty behaviour um, and also rather not cruel. I wouldn't say she's cruel um, and she tries not to be, but selfish in yeah. some respects. Yeah. Um, so I'm very fond of her as a character. Um, and I think the fact that she's just tired of everything um, and she calls things out as they are, um, whilst also just, um, you know, uh, trying to do her best despite everything. Um, I think she's relatable in that way. I mean, would you agree? Am I am I talking at my ass here? Or what? <laughs> no, I think Kestrel's relatable. I was about to say, yes, having read the first three books, well, actually, I mean the first two, not the first three. That's wishful thinking on my part. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I got it. Thanks. <laughs> no, uh, I think the reason I feel like I know her better, I guess, is because we've obviously had little back and forths between writing Kestrel and them together and writing kestrel and mel together and mm -hmm. um yeah she is relatable she's a um a fully rounded character and it's just i the, i mean the grudging hero aspect is great but she's not once you get under her sort of like hardened carapace if you like she's mm. she's i don't want to say she's squidgy like a marshmallow but there's a certain hint of marshmallowiness there <laughs> no i would agree and she's i think one of the other things is that she puts out like this act of everything's kind of you know i i know what i'm i know what i'm doing or something sometimes she the act is very much i don't know what i'm doing and i'm really angry about that um but certainly a level of confidence and the fact of the matter is is that she is a person who has been through an incredible amount of pain um for a number of different reasons and she's petrified she's scared she's out of her depth um and she goes through kind of a lot she starts to be sort of put into positions where she has to make decisions which she doesn't feel like she can actually make yeah um what are the consequences of these decisions um she's been put into a position of authority that she is not ready for that she doesn't want she doesn't want these kinds of things she was retired at the beginning of the story uh from this particular kind of <laughs> this particular world um and next thing she knows, she's kind of been thrown right into the depths of it. Um, and there are going to be consequences and very difficult decisions that she's going to have to make. And she doesn't want to be the one who has to make them. Yeah. Um, so I think she's she's relatable in that way. And I think she's relatable because she does... She, relatable in other ways because she's actually a, a little bit of, of, of a, an everyman. Um, in the way that she looks. She's not an ugly person by any stretch of the imagination, but she's surrounded by people who are incredibly good looking because she's surrounded by the supernatural. And she's average. She's very normal looking. Um, she's, you know, a little bit overweight. Um, she is an, an she, she she has stretch marks and things like that you know she, she's not um she's not this kind of the supernatural 
uh, figure that a lot of people kind of want her to be. So I think that that is another element that's very relatable. She's she's just got anxiety. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Right, well, okay, what do you guys think of the characters of ours that you've actually read or other characters that you've read? Yes. Uh, Have there been characters that you have just really automatically related to or perhaps characters who you didn't relate to before but as time has gone on you've actually found yourself relating to them in adverse there might have been characters you related to as a child um, or as someone who was younger who now you just don't relate to at all we're really interested to know so do get in contact with us remember you can get uh, in contact through our uh, the dissecting dragons uh, twitter Um, Facebook or Tumblr or through our individual profiles as well. Before we go it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week and this week I am going to recommend a book that Jules has been recommending to me (laughs) for an incredibly long time. You see how this works guys. (laughs) Yeah you see how this works. Um, (laughs) I do occasionally recommend things to Jules as well. You do and Um, I read them I generally like them. (laughs) Um, but um, I'm going to be recommending um, Ella Enchanted. Now, it's certainly not a new book by any stretch of the imagination. Um, in fact, when was it published? It was published in... God. It when 19- was it published, Jules? <laughs> I want to say 99, but I could be wrong. It's been out for a while, definitely. It, it certainly has been out for a while. Um and I listened to the audiobook recently. I didn't have time to sit down and, and read um, the book, um, but I listened to the audiobook and I really, really enjoyed it. I think it's a really wonderful um, reimagine, uh, reimagining of Cinderella. It's definitely a classic. It's middle grade um, and it's actually quite a short book as well. I mean, the audiobook is just shy of six hours long. Um, and I just really, really liked it. I thought that it was, uh, forgive me for using the word, I thought that it was enchanting. Um, the characters were great. Um, I loved Ella as well and the skills that she had and the situations she faced, um, and the dilemmas that she was in. She was a relatable character, um, and I just, all in all, highly highly recommended really really enjoyed it um if you haven't had the chance to read it or listen to it yet it differs very much from the movie um so don't take that as the um you know the script that you know it's a different story um but very very well worthwhile um so do go and check that out if you get the chance yeah, definitely. And I'm really glad you enjoyed it. I like it when one of my recommendations sort of lands well. <laughs> Obviously. And on that note, guys, we're going to say thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com 
and MadelineVaughan.com. Please note, no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast. <laughs>